Welcome to another episode of Round Trip Death. I just wanted to give everybody kind of a heads up today. Some of the guests that we have on have rougher stories than others, and today's is one of the roughest. Not every story is easy to listen to, but I feel strongly like someone needs to hear this today. Now let's get right to our guest. We are going across the pond again today, and we have Jack Gregory with us. Jack, how are you? Good evening. I'm good, thank you. Great to be here. Jack, we uh, we lately have had really a lot of nice podcasts with beautiful stories of uh, tunnels and white light and all kinds of these beautiful NDEs. And I'm uh, just warning our audience, this one is not as pleasant today. No. But I think it's important that we hear all kinds of experiences. And uh, before we jump in, why don't you tell us a little bit about you? You had a little rough upbringing as well. Uh, yeah, so um, I grew up in a small town um, in West Yorkshire, a small mining town. I grew up during the... Um, Miners' riots when uh, Prime Minister in her infinite wisdom decided that it was cheaper to buy coal from foreign places. Uh, so all our miners lost our jobs and the town never recovered. I was told when I was eight uh, I was adopted and that's where my life became difficult, messy, broken. And I spent many, many years just um riding on the wave of that really and trying to um trying to find my place in society which i really struggled to do so how did that affect you and your family life so as i said i was i remember um, it was my eighth birthday i was sat at my mum's knee and she told me that her and my dad loved me very much but i didn't actually until then belong to them i was adopted uh and for most people i guess they would take some, you know, some niceness out of that, knowing that they're loved by someone, but that it, it was the totally opposite for me. And I lost my identity. I didn't know who I was. I thought I knew who I was. I was already different. I already felt different to other people. I couldn't read or write very well, and I I, I was seen as the, the special child. I was a bit seen as a bit thick, you know, uh, the, the school system that I grew up in called me mildly retarded and said that I would never, ever really amount to anything. So, yeah, it was like everything went for me. So I just, you know, I, I started to make my own worlds in my imagination and I started to pretend to be other people because I didn't know who I was so I, I could be anybody I wanted to be. So did you move out of the house at a young age? Um, yeah, so I guess I was 17 when I moved out of the house. You know, I used to go see my nana over in, in the next town, and, um, you know, I, I used to love going over there, and I got on really well. I mean, don't get me wrong, I had a very loving family, you know, and I was brought up in a nice home. Um, and despite the town not being very affluent, uh, my dad was a civil engineer and my mum was a social worker, so I always had whatever I wanted. And, you know, and I grew up in a nice house on a nice estate. I, I would go over to 
my nana's house and she, they were they were more uh, you know it was more austerity over there what, what they call council estates i guess you would call them projects and you know i, I spent some time over there but i you know i love my nana but i always felt different and they were always trying to get me to find my family and marry a family and at that time I, I i didn't really want to do it but i moved into a bed sit in that town a lot of the people that I went to school with uh, came from that town. Um, my school life, I grew up in the special school system of, of the UK, um, which isn't or wasn't back then very easy to navigate. Uh, it was, there was no such thing really as dyslexia. Certainly nothing like ADHD or you know, they didn't have the understanding of autism and things like that and neurodivergency. So I was just seen as stupid and thick. But I always had a head for um, facts and knowledge and I was great with words. I always had, my head was filled with words and I couldn't get them out fast enough. But within the school system, I was abused um, physically and sexually by the teachers, uh, bullied by the other kids because I was different, you know, passed around to different people and told that nobody would ever believe me because of this world that I created in my head. I began to tell lies because, you know, I could because it, it was who I wanted to be and I could tell anybody that I was anything. Yeah, I was I was wow. abused awfully. Really rough. So rough upbringing, at what point did you get into drugs? So I got into drugs at school. I, 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 um, one thing I was really good at was running. And the school that I went to was in the middle of a, um, a countryside. So it was like a mile in any direction to any part of the town. And I, I quickly found that I could make a, a lot of money I, I was good at the 1,500 metres. I could do a mile just over seven and a half minutes. Um, so I could run things like dope and um, uh, knock off bootleg VHS, knock off CDs, you know, towards the end of it. I think the first one that I ever did was Fatherland, a prodigy. Um and I could make a lot of money, and I, I, I you know, I, I used to drink um, cheap cider, smoke a lot of dope, and you know, I mean, I, I, I drank a lot. I, I found myself in various anonymous meetings by the time I was fourteen years old, you know, and that that was through uh, social services of the day, you know, and I had a sponsor that was friends with some of the teachers at the school. So I, I was I was bounced around between them all, um, you know, trafficked around them uh, sexually, and um, they, they took my innocence. I, I couldn't talk about it for such a long time. It's only over the past couple of years that I've been able to sort of look into my past like that. Um, so, yeah, I, on and, you know, did drugs on and off. I left school at, at 16, and yeah, I mean, a lot of self-medication, a lot of self-medication, smoking cigarettes, hashish. Um, you know, this is before like weed, weed, um, really, uh, because hashish was cheaper 
it, it came in uh, via the North Sea and then down through the towns. Uh, a lot of the towns then fell into heroin addiction because that was the next cheap drug. Um, I had my first hit of heroin at, at, at 14. I didn't like it much. I always preferred um, cocaine and crack cocaine and amphetamines and things like that. You know, the only downer that I ever really took was uh, alcohol and, uh, and, and dope. Uh, so I'd moved into a, a small bed sit in, in the town that I went to school in, hung around with some of the people that I went to school with, and I really fell into sort of addiction. I had a guy that lived above me uh, in the ma- uh, Masonettes, and uh, his name was Darren, Darren Livesey, and he, he, he became my first mentor. And you could see that there was this poet trying to get out but really struggling so he he would teach me to sort of get by in in reading and writing he i remember once he um took me from my flat locked my flat up carried me upstairs i mean this is a six foot four 20 stone guy took me into his spare bedroom uh, locked the door he put wood over the door uh, and made me go through cold turkey, and he sat there and held me as I went through cold turkey for two or three days. Wow. Um, I, I, I loved him dearly. He passed away in October 1999 due to a really bad road traffic accident. Um, he actually survived it, and um, he was getting better. He'd smashed his pelvis to pieces, and he was in the hospital. He was walking, and he said, one day I'm tired went to bed and I never woke up and we lost him. I lost my best friend. I, um, I, you know, my big brother. And things started to fall apart very, very quickly. Uh, I had a guy who I used to hang about with called Carl. Um, loved him like a brother too. And we, we used to go out on, on, on the Blitz together. And, you know, uh, we went out once. Thursday, I think it was, and we had eight and a half ecstasy each. Uh, and we drunk and had the, you know, uh, just a, an almighty long weekend. And uh, we were walking back and uh, we came up to a a railway crossing. I had a joint in my mouth and he he, he took this joint out and um, he, he took a all my blast and then he, he stuck it back in my mouth and he went, I love you. And he ran and we vaulted the... Uh, Railroad gates and threw himself in front of the train, and there was nothing that I could do. I remember people holding me as I was beating down on the concrete, hands bloodied and just screaming. So I just went into myself and I took whatever I could, and I, I tried suicide, and I, I, I didn't manage that, and I, I would wind people up to try to get them to murder me. <laughs> And in the end, I, I, you know, I had a friend that lived in Portsmouth, which is way down south. And um, I moved away from my West Yorkshire town and I moved to Portsmouth. And I know at one point you got sick, you got pneumonia that led to your near-death experience. How old were you then? Uh, so that was, that was only nine years, coming up to nine years ago. Okay. Go ahead and tell us about that. Um, I had a good life here. 
you know, I, I'd got married, I'd had children, and, you know, my marriage ended um, because of my, I couldn't handle my own trauma. I wasn't using or, or drinking, I wasn't taking drugs, but I couldn't handle my own trauma, and I was sort of dry for a long time. And, you know, infidelity, I would cheat on my wife and I would, you know, um, the marriage ended. So I used that as an excuse to go out back on the Blitz. And I went back out for a good two, three years, uh, to which I found myself uh, homeless, street homeless, addicted to crack cocaine, suffering from non-Hodgkin's lymphoma um, three times while I was on the street, going through chemotherapy, walking 14 miles a day just to have a relationship with my children, uh, and everything just started coming to a coming to a close. I, I, I tried to kill myself. I tried to shoot myself. Undergone jammed. And I, I, I just I didn't know what to do, and I found myself just broke, and nobody would listen. I would sit there. I would rock. I would talk to myself I'd been involved in a church that was more of a cult they said you know we love you your family but when I got made homeless they they would even buy me a sandwich uh, so I was bitter full of resentment full of hate and hurt I was c contemplating going out and doing crime just to end up back in jail so I could have a, a warm you know a warm cell and a roof over my head and food in my belly I just didn't know what to do. I I, I, I I couldn't function. I'd kind of been sort of staying at this this other in this guy's spare room and he wasn't good for me and we, we, we did a lot of drugs together and we'd go out and do crime together and I just I was losing everything. I was losing my daughter and you know, so I, I, I found myself at a food bank once Friday morning. They had this coffee morning and you know, I would go there and I met this woman who was lovely. She she was serving behind the counter. She had a two-month-old boy. Her husband had left her, but she was serving at the food bank. And uh, we started talking and uh, she, she took me out for, you know, despite being told not to, she took me out for food and she bought me tobacco and, you know, a blanket and stuff like that. And she would, you know, and then I didn't see her for for ages and I was just going more and more into this spiral of self-destruction, um, hate, and, and just I was getting worse and worse and worse and worse. And on the 26th of June, 2014, I found myself sat in a crack house and I couldn't, I, I couldn't do it anymore. 10 o'clock at night and I'm, I'm sat there and I'm, you know, I said, God, I don't even know if you exist anymore. But if you do, either take my life or take away this hunger, take away this thirst for drugs because I can't live like this anymore. He's killing me, and I took an almighty hit on this this crack pipe. And I don't know if your, your um, listeners know anything about crack cocaine, but the last thing you want to do is sleep. But I fell asleep, uh, and I woke up at four minutes past 12 um, in the morning on the 27th of June 2014, and I haven't used a day since. And I I started, you know, getting better and, go, you know, helping out with this food bank and... Going to, uh, I'd been going to a church in, in the town that I'm now living. Uh, I'd, I'd started dating Joe, uh, who is now my wife. 
and I just started getting better and I, I started looking at my trauma. But on March the 9th, 2015, um, I'd been getting, I'd, I'd been ill for a few days. I'd, I'd picked up a cough. I'd lost a load of weight. I was six stone. So you're looking at what, about 78, 80 pounds. And I was just getting ill. I, I, I couldn't keep down food. I had this really bad cough, this really bad wheeze. I woke up on the uh, Sunday morning uh, after only about 45 minutes sleep. And I said, I can't do this. I need to go to the hospital. So I um, rang my ex-wife and said, can you come and get my daughter? Because I've got to go to hospital. I, I, you know, I'm, I'm really sick. Uh, and she said, I'll, I'll come and get you in a little while and I'll, I'll take, you know, I'll take you and we'll drop you off so she can see that you're, you know, that you're all right. And, and that's the last I saw, would see her for a month. Um, I got there about 20 past four in the afternoon. By half past seven, I was dead. You mean clinically dead? Clinically dead, four minutes. I had uh, type uh, two lung failure. I had double pneumonia. I had tuberculosis. I had pleurisy. I had an environmental disease that they hadn't seen in about 80 years um, all because of the crap that I'd put into my system for, for the past few years. And, you know, I'd, I'd managed to get clean, but it had done my body some real damage. Uh, and, you know, going to chemotherapy while you're still on drugs for other things, it's, it's, it's not good, really. Um, so it, it really damaged my body. And, um, yeah, I, 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 I passed away for four minutes and I went to hell. And I'm not saying that Jesus sent me to hell because or God sent me to hell because that's not how it works. You know, God doesn't send you to hell. Jesus doesn't send you to hell. He died so we, you know, don't have to. But I hadn't accepted him in my life. I was going to church, but I wanted to still be naughty. Or I wanted at least that option of still being a bit naughty, you know, uh, and not being a Mr. Goody Two-Shoes as I thought. I just, I, I, I couldn't, so I hadn't accepted him. And I ended up in, in hell, and um, it felt like months. And I had this, you know, I, I, I was so busy of my life. Um, every time I'd messed up, I was shown it. I was being tormented. Um, so when they brought me back, um, my mind was broken. And because I was on strong drugs as well that, that they had me on, I had this complete and utter psychological breakdown, complete spiritual breakdown. And physically you were a mess with everything going I, on. Yeah, I, I was, like I say, I was um, six stone and I, I emaciated. I could barely walk. I couldn't eat. Um, I went mute for a while. How long were you at the hospital? Well, I was in the hospital for two months. When I came out of the, uh, when I came back from hell and I had this psychological breakdown, I was convinced that I'd bred this super virulent form of tuberculosis and people were dying around me and um, they were being replaced by doppelgangers or robots and I was, I was being teased and tormented. I wouldn't eat, I, I wouldn't drink. They sectioned me while I was in the hospital under the Mental Health Act. 
Um, I was screaming at people, trying to attack them. I remember my, my good friend, Granley, who's the uh, leader of, of our church, he came in to pray for my soul because they were told they were going to lose me again. And they very nearly did. And through the whole thing, through the tor- you know, the, the, the torment and from the demons that, that were just out of view, there was this figure stood at the end of the bed and uh, it felt different to all the other figures that were there. There was this one doctor, a, a female Asian doctor, and she she would come in and, you know, I know that, like, your hospital is in the U.S., that in certain parts of the U.S. it's not a problem praying for people and, and you know, doc, doctors talking about their faith, but it's illegal here. But I remember this one doctor, this young female Asian doctor, she had a cross on, um, and you're allowed to wear a cross when you work for the NHS, but it has to be covered, but she... She kept letting me see it, and then every time she'd see somebody come in, she'd put it away. And this, whatever it was at the end of my bed, uh, I guess I just said, I can't deal, deal with this anymore, I can't do this. I, I said, uh, you know, have, have, have you come to take me back to hell? And he's like, no, that's not why I'm here. You know who I am. And I said, you're Jesus. And he went, yeah. I said, well, what have I got to do in this? He said, look, you know what you've got to do. And I went, okay. Lord, I accept you into my life. And that darkness that I saw from my eyes, that graininess and all the darkness around, came light again. I was sat up in my bed. I hadn't done that in weeks. And this one nurse walked in and she looked at me and she went white as she saw me sitting up in my bed. And I said, I can have a wash, please. And she went running out and I could hear all the scarping outside and doctors coming in and pecking me and they're like, this is not right. You, you know, we sat up and I'm like, oh, yeah, I want to wash. I felt grotty and dirty. And there's this one medication that they'd given me that had given me an adverse reaction. I had a rash from my chin to my torso and it was burning. It was a burning rash. Um, it, I, I literally thought that they uh, covered me with acid to torture me. Um, and they brought this bowl in uh, and a washcloth, and I started washing. And as I was washing, this this rash just began to peel away from my skin. You know, I have doctors and nurses who will verify this. It, it just began to fall away from my skin and miraculously it just disappeared. And I said, I'm hungry. I hadn't eaten in weeks. They, they were shoving uh, pipes up my nose and down my throat just, just to get anything in me, just to keep me alive. Yeah, he probably had a feeding tube of some sort. Yeah. I had to learn to eat again. I'd had this, um, these ulcers in my mouth that, that were really, really bad. So they gave me this medicine that covered my mouth that stopped the ulcers from hurting so I could eat. I'd had a job. Uh, before I went into hospital, um, you know, I'd start building my life back up. And uh, while I was in the hospital, I got made redundant. I got £200. And the doctor said to me, if you can get back up to eight stone, you can go home. And that's about how many pounds? I guess I should be Googling this right now. Less than £100. I weighed less than £100. This is a stone is 14 pounds. So you weighed how many stones? Six stones, six ounces. 
So that's 60, 84 pounds. That is really skinny. Yeah. Wow. And I'm six foot one. Yeah, you were wasting away. I was. I was. Before we talk about uh, more of your recovery, I want to go back and hear a little bit more about hell. And I, you know, when I talk to people that have had these wonderful experiences in the spirit world, I love all the details. I'm not asking you to do that here, except to tell us as much as you as you feel like. One of the things that most people feel in the spirit world is immense love, whether they see someone that they feel is God or a loved one or something else, they feel this immense, overwhelming love. Was your experience with hell the opposite of that? Yeah. Um, the true meaning of hell is without God. Um, and God was, you know, I didn't feel God there. Um, it was dark. It wasn't a fiery inferno. It, it wasn't ashes and embers falling down and, and, and burning. It wasn't uh, bridges of razor wire and things like that. It was exactly like our world, but emptier and darker. It was kind of like walking around a building at twilight, so it wasn't totally devoid of light. There was some light there, but it was like very dim. I could hear the taunts from what I presume were demons. I could hear the laughter of what I believe to have been the saying himself. I never saw him, but I heard him, and I never saw really the demons, but I heard them. I was kind of out of phase, uh, a different frequency, so it was like I wasn't walking, but I wasn't floating. It was kind of going into different rooms. At one point, I could see myself in the bed. At one point, I could see the nurse's station outside of the room. I was in this thing called a negative pressure room, which is kind of, um, it helps you breathe better when you've got uh, things like the pneumonia and tuberculosis and stuff. It was devoid of love. I truly felt that God wasn't there. Um, and I'd kind of had a faith before I'd gone there, so I felt judged, I felt guilt, immense guilt and shame for the, some of the things that I'd done in, in my life. I felt guilt and shame for the way that I treated my parents. You know, I felt guilt and shame for when I was in prison, and I did it alone because I, I felt guilty and ashamed, and I couldn't tell my parents I was in prison. So... I had all this just piling on and piling on and piling on, so I just felt like they were taking bits of my soul at a time until I had nothing left, and I felt truly soulless. It was towards, like, the end and before I started, you know, breathing again, that it felt more ethereal. It felt... Like, I've I've taken LSD in my time and magic mushrooms and stuff. It kind of felt a bit like that. There was no light at the end of the tunnel. There was no tunnel. All I can describe it as, like, old VHS. It kind of looked like old VHS. Uh, and, you know, when I came out of it all and I started to get better, it then went back into sort of HD. Um, that's the only way I can really describe it. 
Yeah, like the color came back into the room and into the world. Yeah, um, it, it became normal. You know, it wasn't grainy. It wasn't dark. It, it, it was, you, you know, I felt the sunlight coming through the window. There has to be light to see color as well. Yeah, yeah. You thought about that? There's no, there's no color without light. No. Uh, and I've heard people describe it as, you know, being in the shadows. I describe it as outside of the periphery, um, outside of your peripheral vision, just outside. So you know it's there. It's kind of in a different phase, a different frequency. You know it's there, but you can't quite see it. And that's how I, I, I took the whole sort of thing. I still have flashbacks. I still have nightmares. It was a traumatic experience. And then at one point you saw Jesus at the foot of your bed. I did. He, he was at the foot of my bed. And he said, um, you know who I am. And he said, you know what you got to do? And I said, I, I, Jesus, I take you into my life. Did you see him looking like a person, like some of the paintings maybe that we see of him? No, he was he was like I, how I saw the specialists and the doctors they he was there and i knew but he was just outside of my line of sight but w when i did see i saw this figure it wasn't full bodied if you know what i mean it was kind of transparent but it definitely wasn't why jesus um that i was brought up to believe in the you know it, it wasn't the blonde hair, blue eyes, he, he, he was definitely an ethnic man, but it was more the love in his voice that, that, that drew me more than anything. And I'm a, I'm a logical man, but, you know, this was different. I, I, I would have described myself as an agnostic, not bright enough to be an atheist, but... Um, I knew that by accepting him back into my, you know, into my life, that that was the only way I would ever get out of the hell that I was in, you know, the living hell that that I was in. And yeah, he he gave me a new life. I was I was reborn in that bed that day. And how is your life different now? This has been eight years ago. Yeah, uh, nearly nine years ago. So. Yeah, I mean, it's been massively different. When I was, I guess, about 16, 18 months sober, I got asked by a friend who is a casting agent to go and speak to a director. The thing about the city of Norwich is that it's um, it's very big in the uh, United Kingdom film business, second only to London. Um, but they do a lot of filming over here, so things like Jack the Giant Killer was filmed here, Stardust was filmed here. Loads of other things have, have been filmed there. We've got two former RAF bases that are now film studios. And I was asked to go and, and speak to uh, a director by the name of Joanna Hogg, who was making a film called The Souvenir, or two films, The Souvenir, part one and two. And I was asked to go and speak to her because of the life that I'd led, because the film was about uh, addiction. It was partly funded by my Scorsese, and I went to speak to Joe Hogg, and we had a chat. You know, I was only initially going to give a little bit of advice, maybe a small part in the film. 
I ended up having a small part in the film and becoming consultant for the, both of the films. I had a cameo in the second film as well. I turned down a role in Jingle Jangle, which was filmed in, in Norwich, um, to go and work on part two. In 2017, 16, 17, uh, I wrote my first book, A First of Apocalypse. And then 2017, I, I'd, I'd spent six months with escapees of human trafficking, sexual slavery and exploitation, and decided to write a book about it. And that helped me really look at my own trauma and, 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 and know that I was trafficked because I would never have thought I'd have been trafficked. I just thought it was abuse. So I started working on my trauma. I'd had a relationship with my biological mum over the past sort of few years as well, and uh, she passed away at the Easter of uh, 2017. Um, my sister was having a baby. She had the baby in June of 2017, and at, at two days old, my sister had quite a trauma, traumatic birth, so she was in bed sleeping. Her partner was looking after the baby. For some reason, he lost his temper, um, was unable to get the baby to sleep, and he beat her to death. He was sentenced to uh, life with a minimum of 10 years, but within eight months, uh, he was murdered by his cellmate over a 50-pound drug debt. So we were left with unanswered questions. Again, I'd started feeling hate and hurt, and it took a year before we could have the funeral, and one of the lead elders from our church he took me home back to Yorkshire for the funeral and uh, I'd come out would come out of the funeral and I, back in the day so I smoked and I lit a cigarette and his mum came up to me and she put her arms around me and she said thanks for coming and it broke me and I, 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 I started filling up with this anger this hurt this hate so Chris took me back to the car and I sat in the car and I just broke and I started to cry. And then I had this, there's this clarity that you only get when you're in pain. The clarity that you get when you're screaming and screaming and screaming and you're really angry and you hit something and you hit it a bit too hard and you know you've broken something and this calmness just comes over you. Uh, and he snaps you straight out of it. Well, that's kind of how it happened in the car. And Chris looked at me and he said, "What? what what's going on? And I said, I've got to forgive him. I said, I've got to forgive him. I said, I can't, I can't, I can't do this. I said, I hate him. And, you know, I wanted him dead, but this is, this is tearing me apart. I can't live like this anymore. So I need, God's telling me I need to forgive him, not for him. But I knew that unforgiveness was like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. I said, I need to forgive him and I need to love him. You know, loving somebody doesn't mean that you, you, you like them in the biblical sense. I started this whole new journey of, of, of forgiveness. In 2020, I, I, I built a working relationship with the daughters of a gangland figure uh, in a place called Salford, uh, which is in the north of England. He was uh, slain by a hitman in, in, in 2015. We needed these answers, we needed, so I helped them write a book. It took me quite a while to do because I was suffering with my mental health. So I, I worked on the book and, um, yeah, I that's basically where I'm at. Yeah, that's a whole lot. I appreciate you sharing. As we wind this down, 
let's let let's just let people know. You were telling me earlier um, you've been sober now for about nine years. Yep. Congratulations, that's fantastic. I know you've got kids. You've got a nice family life. I've, I've, I've got a great life. What else is going on? I get to occasionally play other people in uh, TV and film. I get to regularly um, consult. Just about to finish book number four. I'm working with escapees uh, of um, domestic violence um, and telling their stories. I've got well, probably about a month, a month and a half, and that'll be out. I have a an audio book coming out from the first book, uh, and I have a spoken word album coming out, which is just based on the poetry from the first book. I'm known as the accidental journalist. I help people speak their story. I work with a lot of miscarriages of justice, people that are serving time in prison for murders they did commit. I get a lot of people on to speak about their sobriety, like I'm doing with you now, uh, to share their stories. Um, I've sat and I've laughed with my guests. I've cried with my guests. And it's been a journey. It's, it's been a massive journey. Um, my daughter is about to do her GCSEs. You know, I've finished high school, so I'm feeling a little bit old right now. My stepson will be 17 in May, so that makes me feel even older. I like to do the occasional podcast when I'm speaking to other people because it helps keep myself grounded and it helps me use my voice. I'm a big member of my church. I'm training in um, ministry and uh, teaching. I'm part of this thing called School of Supernatural Life, which is um, basically we, we believe that you know, God is supernaturally natural and naturally supernatural and that we have gifts that he wants us to have and he wants to give us things like prophecy and one word for other people. And, you know, it, it helps us give gifts to people and, and, and just bring a bit of hope back into people's lives with evangelism and stuff like that. Yeah, I really appreciate you sharing all of this with us today. If you think about that young man that you were a few years ago, where life was not in a good place, if that person were listening to you today, and there may be somebody out there that is, that's feeling just like you did back then, what's your message of hope for him or her? It might feel like it, but you're not alone. You are loved. You're loved by God. You're loved by me. I know it's going to get dark, and it does get darker before the light sets in. But just hold on to that hope, because it will get you through. You will get better. Things will get better. Relationships will get better, and you will begin to love yourself. That trauma that you're living in doesn't belong to you. Trauma is caused by other people. It doesn't belong to you, so let go and just ride it out because there is a light and it is coming. Wisdom from someone who's been there and has learned the hard way. Thanks for being with us today, Jack. Appreciate it. Thank you, mate. 
Thanks again for listening. We hope you will share this message with family and friends. To be notified when the next episode goes live, follow this show on your podcasting app or click over to roundtripdeath.com and sign up for our email newsletter. Until then, I wish you everything good that you're looking for in this life and the next. Thank you.